Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the scriptures become real to us, because when they're more real, we can apply them to our lives better and draw more power from them. And in our day, we need all the power we can get and all the inspiration that can come to us as we study the scriptures. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have back with me uh, one of my favorite people, Sean Hopkin. Uh, who's my department chair and teaches here at uh, Ancient Scripture at BYU. Uh, if you missed the podcast he did, the episode he did with uh, his father when we introduced the Psalms, go back and listen to that. That was so much fun and, and so fantastic. I think you'll not look at the Psalms the same way after that. You'll have just a much better experience. Uh, not that you're having a bad experience before, but it'll be even better. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, welcome, Sean. Good to have you with us. Uh, really fun to be here, Carrie. And uh, as we said in the Psalms, we go back a ways. And I've been so grateful for your friendship and, and goodness to me over the years. And so this is fun for a lot of reasons. I like Isaiah. I know you like Isaiah. We've both written and, and spent a lot of time studying and caring about Isaiah. So this is fun to do this together. Yeah, tell us a little bit. So, I, I mean, I'll just mention uh, you can get Sean's further background by listening to that first um, uh, podcast he was in, um, and he can tell us like what his degrees are in, but also tell us a little bit about what you've done with uh, Isaiah. Well, when I first arrived at BYU, I, and, and uh, within a couple of years, I'd been asked to teach the Isaiah class, and I thought, who has done a harmony? I, I want this for my class so that it compares and we can see the differences in the Book of Mormon and the biblical text and Joseph Smith translation. And I couldn't find one. Ann Madsen had sort of the closest thing to one she had worked on in a class. And so she and I got together and said, okay, let's make one of these that I can use in class. And really, so we created this thing called the Isaiah Harmony that was really designed to use in Isaiah classes. And we wrote the footnotes for it that sort of guide through some of the challenging areas. Well, Carrie was one of the very helpful reviewers of that to say, hey, ooh, this is good. This maybe let, let's consider a little shift here. Yeah, and, I thought that was uh, supposed so, to be a secret. Oh, well, I'm sorry. just joking. I'm, yes. I'm just, I'm yeah, just we, teasing. We, we, we actually talked together on that. Yeah, I don't know we if did. this was the typical blind peer review. I think I had others of those as well. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just teasing. Yeah. Great. And, <laughs> um, and then Carrie, of course, is you're, you're probably aware has continued to write on this and, and uh, he, he's going to be embarrassed and maybe feel like, he wants to cut this out, but I hope he'll leave in. I find we have editing privileges. <laughs> his most recent book on Isaiah is uh, maybe the best that we have. There's a lot of good work on Isaiah by Latter-day Saint scholars, Don Perry, Victor Ludlow, and others. I really, really appreciate all of them. And Carrie's most recent work on it is is really excellent, very useful. Yeah. So, uh, just to embarrass you for a moment, Carrie, uh, you, you succeeded. Thank you. <laughs> Well, good. Uh, so with all this, and, and Sean has taught that Isaiah class a number of times, um, I, I think that uh, the only reason I got to start teaching, well, partially I was I was working on that book and I, I talked to our department chair then uh, at the time, Dana Pike, and I said, I'm, I'm working on writing this book, but I think I'll do a better job if I'm teaching the class at the same time and to give me a better idea of what people are struggling with and so on. Uh, but I think it still wouldn't have happened except for Sean had just gone to Israel. And so they needed someone else that could uh, teach those courses. The Isaiah course is like the most coveted course in our department. Everybody wants to teach that course. Well, I don't know if everybody does, but probably the New Testament guys don't. But uh, but tons of people want to teach that course, but there aren't very many sections of it. And, uh, and once you start teaching, you kind of get slotted into that and it's hard to break into. So I had been waiting for a number of years. I'd gotten senior enough. I thought maybe I had a, a bit of a chance if I could find the right moment. And Sean taking a break uh, and me working on it was the right moment. And, and now I'm kind of the, the senior teacher of Isaiah because Sean's a department chair and doesn't get to teach very much. So it's, it's kind of nice for me to be, that doesn't mean that uh, no one else should ever teach it. And I think we're having some new people teach it right now. Well, uh, uh, Josh, who has just uh, visited with us about Isaiah a little while ago, I think is teaching it coming up and so on. So we have lots of, of uh, new teachers, but I am thrilled to be able to teach that course. It's so much fun to go through Isaiah with the students, but Sean's been doing it for longer than I have. It, it is a lot of fun and you get really students, as you might imagine, uh, you don't sign up uh, for an Isaiah class because you just want to find the easiest religion class around. And so you tend to get very <laughs> dedicated uh, gospel learners in the, that class. And it's really satisfying to explore the words of Isaiah together. Yeah. So, yeah. And so that's now the entire church. The entire church really wants to understand Isaiah because we're hitting it for a number of weeks here in Come Follow Me. And we're almost done with it. 
Uh, but and I hope that everyone is having a great experience and Sean's just going to make it even better. So take us where you want to go, Sean. Well, there's so many places we could go in these chapters. It's uh, Isaiah 50 to 57. I want to focus in on what you've probably been most excited to do. One of the areas you probably are most excited for is Isaiah 53. And, and we spend a lot of time with it as Latter-day Saints. And so I don't know that we'll do sort of a verse by verse run as, as powerful as that will be as you study it. I'm interested in sort of showing what the arc is doing particularly sort of 52 53 54 and then show how that shows up in the book of mormon and that'll help us talk about isaiah a little bit so there's this really beautiful arc we could actually start uh, go go back just for a moment carrie to 51 and i uh, nephi quotes uh, jacob actually quotes 51 as you can see there in the the headings if you're looking at second nephi 8 um, and, and he uses it to then lead into second Nephi nine, where he's talking about the captivity of death and sin and Christ's atonement. And so he's going to talk about redemption and Isaiah is, is encouraging the Judites or the Jewish people, the Israelites, that you are going to be able to return from Babylon, from your captivity. They were carried away as we know, and he's promising them that the day will come when you're going to be redeemed back to the land, back to a place where you can build a temple and have temple worship. And, and maybe Jake, I'll just jump in, Sean, if it's all right, because yeah, I'm really yeah, like it. that. And I'd say, uh, although we don't want this to take forever, but it's it's worth going back even to, to Isaiah 50, which is 2 Nephi 7. It's in 2 Nephi 7, right? And, and uh, Jacob, both Jacob and Isaiah are using this uh, in some ways. Verse 1 of chapter 50 sets the tone for all of this, where he says, where's the bill of your mother's divorcement, or to whom have I sold you? And, and his point is, I haven't sold you. I haven't, I haven't gotten rid of you. So all of this other stuff he's going to have about the, the servant and the suffering and all this stuff is in this context of, I know you feel abandoned, and there are times where they're suffering, so, but I'm here for you. And that's, that's, that's kind of the, the beginning of that arc, arc in many ways, I think. So sorry to jump well, in there, but keep us going. No, that's great. Uh, and and uh, beautifully said. And the way Carrie has talked about that, of course, resonates those of us who at times and probably all of us at times feel like, wow, I, I thought I was, uh, everything was sailing along well. And now I feel like one of maybe the forgotten ones or like I'm on the outside of God's plan and God's plan is for everybody else, but not for me. And, and I'm a forgotten one, so to speak. And he's saying, no, I, we are we are married, so to speak. We're in a covenant relationship, and I have not gotten rid of you. And then look at the way that plays forward in uh, in chapter 51, where he's going to say that there's this plea that Israel makes to the Lord. Awake, it's verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in ancient days and the generations of old. So you're the one who brought us up out of Egypt. Can you bring us back into a blessed state of communion with you? And then God is going to respond. Look at verse 21. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. You're, you're drunk, so to speak, with affliction, with sorrow, with suffering. Thus saith the, uh, thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, right? I, I promise I'm going to come to redeem you. I'm going to come and save you. I'm going to bring you back in to this beautiful uh, redeem, redeemed state of union with your God. And then, and then, as we were and saying, maybe just Jacob, because I'm I'm such a covenant guy, I'm going to throw this in there. That uh, just right before that, the plea at the end of verse 16, say unto Zion, "Thou art my people." This is a plea. Uh, I I've been trying to keep the covenant. Maybe there were times I strayed, but I'm trying to keep the covenant. Will you come back and tell me? Because thou art my people is a way of saying that we're in the covenant. Will you come back and tell me we are still in this covenant together? And I think we all feel that from time to time. So that's when you're going to really be touched by this, this thing. You, you've been saying like the dregs of my fury shall, thou shalt no more drink it again. This is the, like, okay, we are in the covenant. That's your way of telling me thou art my people. So anyway. You know, thank you, Carrie. Um, there 
there's this really nice verse in, in Psalms and Isaiah both, you get this idea of God's, the covenant relationship is often symbolized by his hand. He says, yeah. I'm going to uphold you by my right hand. I'm going to grasp you by your I'll right lead hand. Lead thee by the hand. Yeah. It, we, we sing this often, right? In hymn 85, um, in this beloved song, uh, Elder Bednar, and, and I think so many of us as Latter-day Saints love uh, how firm a foundation. And yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you by your hand and lead you through difficult places. Well, there's this fascinating verse in Psalms where the, the individual, the worshiper is talking with God, pleading with God and saying, take your hand back out of your bosom, offer me your hand again, let me know I'm still yours, that uh, we're, I'm still in a covenant relationship with you, reconnect with me. And so God is here promising Yes, I'm, I, you are part of that covenant relationship, a crucial part of that covenant relationship, and we are still walking together. Thank you for Beautiful. that. Very, really important. Okay, so that then leads into chapter 52. Well, there's chapter 52 is quoted more often than any other scripture from Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Nephi and Jacob are going to quote it as, uh, and, and it's really these verses that we hear, we're going to hear them most prominently in the mouths of the wicked priests of King Noah. So look at verses seven through, let's do seven through nine. So he's been saying, I'm, I'm going to save you. You feel like you're abandoned, but I'm going to save you. And then there's this image of a messenger who is running to give the good news that God is coming to save his people. So this messenger is coming to announce that. And you can see it's a messenger because you've got feet. They're bringing a message, right? So let me just read these. How beautiful upon the mountains. And I want you to think if, if any of you have been to Jerusalem before, and if not, just look at the photos and enjoy the maps of the Mount of Olives and someone coming up over the Mount of Olives in sight of the Holy Mount or the Temple Mount and then the Temple Mount. The Holy Mount is another space there anciently where Solomon's temple would have been. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Now, if we put that from Hebrew into Greek, then that's the gospel. That's the evangelion, right? That's the good news, the good message that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Look at verse eight, thy watchmen. So they're watching for what's going on in the, in, uh, from a distance. You can think of that prophetic role as a watchman on a tower. Thy watchman shall lift up the voice with the voice together shall they sing. They shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion, break forth into joy, sing ye together. So there's these messengers who are coming and they're announcing God is going to redeem his people. Well, Nephi and Jacob, Jacob talks a lot about the atonement of Christ and redemption from death and sin. Nephi talks about latter days and how Zion will be redeemed in the last days, and the Gentiles, and this is all very Isaianic, right? The Gentiles are going to carry the Israelites upon their shoulders, and the covenant's all going to be re re restored. His own people are going to be helped in the last days. So this has been really important for Nephite prophets. Well, then lo and behold, it shows up, and we're most familiar with it, most Latter-day Saints, in the mouths of King Noah's priests. So when Abinadi shows up, they use this against him. And, and we sort of think, oh, they're just using, why are you such a negative guy? Look, you're supposed to be a joyful guy. But I would su suggest, it's been suggested by others, Dan Belknap, Frank Judd, a number of other uh, Book of Mormon scholars, that they, they, this part of their psyche, that they believe they really do have this right. They see themselves potentially as the people, if you remember, they returned from Zarahemla back to the land of Nephi. So Mosiah the first had fled with the righteous to Zarahemla. And now there's this sort of zealous, maybe overzealous group that's like, no, we got to return and redeem the land. We're going back where that original temple was. And they do it. They come back. They rebuild the temple. They build, using very Isaiahic language, a wine tower, a watch tower, sorry, a wine press, a watch tower, 
they defeat the enemies, the Lamanites, and they have space and power amongst them, and that they probably saw themselves really as fulfilling this. Hey, no, we are the people. We're the redeemed ones. And so, Abinadi, you're a false prophet because you're Isaiah is praising us and you are critiquing us, right? And so they turn this upside down as we often do in our lives. We, we take things and say, well, look, I, I look at all the blessings I have. I must be doing what's right. And that, that's the reverse of what God is trying to accomplish, right? With this yeah. idea of if you're obedient, then I will bless you. But as humans, we often turn that upside down and say, look, I've got these things. Therefore, I know that God approves of me. And, and Abinadi's like, nope, that's not how that works. That is not how that works. That's good. Gary, you want to interject anything? No, no, this is great. Just keep, keep it going. Well, so... It, Abinadi says, hmm, well, you've forgotten about morality, right? Uh, about covenant morality. And so he leads them through the Ten Commandments. And you could even read this Abinadi narrative and, and the story of Noah and his people as demonstrating point by point how they've broken every single one of those Ten Commandments. And so yeah. it, he's hitting them where they live. He says, okay, fine, but you can't be this people if you're not following God's law. And then look how brilliant Abinadi is. He says, well, there's something else I want to point out. Turn the page. If we're talking in modern language, well, just turn the page. You've quoted from 52, 7 through 9. But what is this good news that the messengers bring? Well, it's announced in Isaiah 53. It's announced by the, this suffering one who will be cursed and rejected and despised by the people, but who will triumph and out of whose offering will spring forth the bounteous good and goodness and blessings of Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55. And so there's a story arc here in Isaiah that they have missed the central portion of it, which is Isaiah 53. And, and re restoring it as Abinadi does into the correct place, they don't like that very much. And of course, Abinadi doesn't survive very much longer after he shows that, right? But it's yeah. really powerful what he does. And there, there are some really, uh, I mean, that's just brilliant. And uh, maybe I'll add just a couple other, I think, really fun things. Uh, I mean, uh, again, as you said, they feel like we're the covenant people in the covenant place. We're good. And Isaiah is reminding them it's not just about having made a covenant, it's about keeping it, right? Um, and, and, and so often that seems to be the case with ancient Israel or apparently these people in the Book of Mormon that we're in the covenant, good, good to go, right? We got baptized, that's it. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves in what ways we do that. We may not do it the same way, but we, we are probably doing that in some way, like, yeah, I made the covenant, I'm, I'm good to go. Whereas I, uh, he's going to talk about what it really means to keep the covenant. And of course, he's going to focus that on Christ. But he doesn't just focus it on Christ, um, as, as neither does Isaiah. For Isaiah, this servant theme that, that is all over in this second part of Isaiah, but really hits started start in about chapter 50, and we get it going really powerfully through 53 and so on. Um, uh, the servant is certainly Christ, but it's also Israel, and it's anyone who is sharing the gospel. And, and uh, Abinadi emphasizes that, right? Anyone who helps someone come unto Christ, they're, they're an interpretation of this. But interestingly, I think that they see, I, I don't know if he is intending this, probably, but maybe not. But my guess is, and I'm just reading into the priest's minds here, but they've got a guy in front of them whom they are persecuting and who they have in chains. And he's telling them that God sends someone to the people to save them. And the people will persecute them and do all these terrible things to them. And it seems if I were the priest, I'd be like, Hey, he's talking about us doing this to him. Right. And I think it is a fulfillment of it. It's not the primary fulfillment. Christ is the primary fulfillment, but it's an important fulfillment. And I think it makes them all the more upset. And then that's going to happen, I would guess, any number of times, but this is the time we're reading about. Yeah, th th that's really great. Um, and, and let's just pause for a moment and sort of spend another moment on what you were, you were referring to, and that is who is the identity of the servant. Yeah. And, and it's clear in other places that 
there, there's one time when he's talking about the servant and he says, Oh, Israel, right? Yeah, it's, I and think so, it's twice. It's the only time he identifies who the servant is, and both times it's Israel. Right. And so this has been a subject of debate, uh, maybe between uh, many Jewish and Christian readers. Well, is this referring to Christ or not? And to me, I just want to give a, a shout out that the, the Jewish readers, in, in one sense, aren't wrong at all. This is covenant Israel. This is yeah. what it looks like. And we take this phrase, what would Jesus do, WWJD? And, and let's understand that a little bit differently, that Christ's life, his suffering, his atoning sacrifice, uh, and, and then his subsequent triumph in his covenant relationship with the Father helps us understand our own Israelite experience, that yeah. it's not just that everything is rosy all the time when you sacrifice to keep covenants. There is some, and when you're trying to help others, there's real sacrifice. There is at times real suffering, but God promises we will come through that uh, triumphantly. And why do we come through it triumphantly? Because the Israelite par excellence, the Messiah, the, the fulfillment, uh, uh, the example of the perfect Israelite, has shown us how the way, and he's broken the bands of our inability to do so. And so all of Israel, to, as Carrie, uh, I've heard you do this a couple of times, and I love it. This is us, and let's not lose sight of the most important, that the reason it can be us is because it's Christ, right? Yeah. Uh, it's Israel, and Christ is the example of that. I, I could not agree more. Um, and and there's a, a beautiful uh, aspect of that, that uh, not only do you see, so you can see Isaiah is a fulfillment of this. There are times where it's clear Joseph Smith is a fulfillment of this. As we just said, I think Abinadi is. There are all sorts of, of people who are fulfillments of this. Some of them were fulfillments of it before the prophecy was given, right? Abraham and Israel are probably, you know, Jacob are probably fulfillments of this, um, with the primary one uh, being Christ. But then it's Israel as a whole, and it's each Israelite individual. So as we each, as an Israelite, as a covenant keeper, are trying to bring forth or do God's will, there will be suffering. And as you said, there's the beautiful promise that we will eventually be delivered, but there's also embedded in it a promise that we will do good as we are serving God. It may entail suffering. It, it may not look like we're, we're succeeding, but success will come and deliverance will come. So it's, it's not only that we'll be delivered from the suffering, but that the suffering will have brought about something. And, and it's clear in a number of places in these Isaiah chapters that talk about the servant that, that one of the primary things that the servants do and their suffering brings forth is it brings forth light hmm. to those who are in need of light, which of course Christ does more than anyone else, but we do as well, right? So this teaches us that we as covenant holders are supposed to be mirrors of or shadows or types of Christ. We're supposed to do our part in bringing deliverance to people. And that's, that's an exciting thing. You know, it's really fun to do this with Carrie. You know, you can tell both of us, it matters to us that these aren't just these academic kinds of concepts, but what does this mean in my life? What does this mean in your life? What does it mean in our students' lives? Yeah. And, and I would just a shout out to our Jewish friends, uh, Nobody knows better than they do about the challenges and the suffering that comes uh, to a people who is trying to maintain their loyalty to God and God's name and be a light to the nations. And, and, and they are not wrong uh, in the way that they interpret this. In fact, the, the way they interpret it has much uh, to commend itself to us as Christians, who, of course, most importantly see Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of these things. But I, but I, I so, so, so agree that... Uh... I mean, think of the light that we have. Nephi talks about it. Think of the light that we have because of, of the gospel that's been preserved to us by the covenant people, specifically the Jews. Uh, that's, uh, they are fantastic fulfillment of this. And I hope that, that as uh, modern-day Israel, we are as well. So I, I got to just dig in a little bit more with what Carrie was doing as well. Oh, Look at sorry this. if I, I got in your way. Sorry. No, no, not at all. No. In fact, go back there uh, to the very last verse of Isaiah 52 and what you were saying about Abinadi now um, prophesying. So he doesn't, he doesn't uh, quote verse 15, but they would have known verse 15. So he sort of passes over this 
maybe even politely, I don't know. I don't see a, a Benedict trying to be too <laughs> polite here, but look at this. So shall he sprinkle. There's a JST there that talks about gathering, but you can think of sort of the blood offering, right? Uh, uh, animal offering and, and atoning sacrifice thing. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. Uh, that which had not been told them shall they see. And just think of King Noah then and his fear as a Benedict sort of exposes him and his sin, and just how spectacularly Abinadi knows the scriptures and is able to use this that they have used against him uh, then to say, okay, let's understand it a little more accurately, yeah, and yeah. it actually demonstrates exactly the scene that we read in the Book of Mormon. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and maybe King Noah, you should shut your mouth, and he does a little bit, right? He does, But yeah. then he doesn't, yeah. That's right, that's right. He's goaded on by, by others. Yeah. And then, and Carrie's already pointed to this, look at verse one, so the messengers have now arrived, but their message isn't fully believed. People don't believe that the time of redemption has come. So if you're thinking of that as, as Isaiah is talking about it, verse one, who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And when, when he talks about what this is going to look like, then he's saying people aren't prepared to believe this. And, and if, then, of course, you can see Abinadi quoting this, who I'm going to tell you. I'm a prophetic messenger. Are you going to believe my report? And obviously they don't, because yeah. then, as Carrie beautifully uh, demonstrated, so this messianic figure here is going to die. His life is going to be cut short. And in similitude of that, Abinadi, an Israelite, right? His life is going to be cut short. Just amazing. And the yet Book good of comes out better, of it. The Book of Mormon is better than we thought, uh, I guess, is one yeah. of the points here. Yeah. And its use of Isaiah is powerful. That's good stuff. Uh, it's amazing. And in just a moment or in a few moments, when we sort of move into Isaiah 54, we'll talk a little bit about how Jesus, how Christ uses these when he comes to the Nephites. And, and there's even more that could be said here um, and, and that we will say about how powerful the Book of Mormon's use of Isaiah is. So I'd Harry, like to, before we go, and I don't want to keep going, spending too much time, but I'd just like to get this. Actually, I thought I had, I'd love critique on this from you. Yeah. Um, when we get to this uh, socially sprinkle many nations and, and you're right. So we've got JST that talks about gathering and the wonderful. Uh, so the thing I love about Isaiah is I think most often more than one meeting is intended. Hmm. And Joseph Smith seems to be adding to that a little bit. So you've got the gathering, you've got the sprinkling of the blood and so on. But I also have in my mind, this image that these servants, Israel, Israelites are sprinkled among the nations, oh, and that's nice. actually what makes it possible oh, for goodness. the gathering to happen. I have never seen Joseph that Smith. before, Kerry. Uh, but but it, I, I, it seems like that's how the gathering happens, is because they're sprinkled everywhere, then they, they're gathered and they bring everyone with them. Uh, so I don't know about your thoughts on that. But. Well, I love that. So you got the blood of Christ, of course, that is sprinkled, the blood of the, the suffering one that is sprinkled, that atones for sin and allows us to come back into this covenant relationship and, and for that to be redeemed. But then the blood of Israel being spread or sprinkled, as the scriptures often, as scriptures often say, throughout the nations, that then, so Christ's atoning blood is the power behind it, but the method is the covenant house of Israel, the scattering and gathering as President Nelson loves to talk about. And, and what a yeah. joyous thing it is for us as Old Testament scholars, by the way, to be led by President Nelson, who so yeah. clearly understands these messages and is keeping them present in the latter days, these ancient messages uh, before our eyes. Yeah. Yep. And this, this tandem of Christ and Israel working together, right? That it is the Israel gathering people to Christ in the covenant and then Christ's sprinkling of his blood is what gathers them to God, right? It just, I, I find this, uh, it's, it's a tandem team, Israel and, and Christ. I find that uh, motivating to me. Gary, I hope you leave this in the podcast, our little uh, side discussion here, because that, that's a beautiful concept. That's really nice. Okay, you wanted to move on to 54, or did you have some more in 53? Well, you to do? maybe I'll just say... Uh, a couple of things about Isaiah 53. There is mm -hmm. so much we could spend hours on Isaiah 53. The one of the things that I like, I think it's important to recognize is what we might call the dichotomy or that that Christ is both cursed one and victor, right? Yeah. Triumphant one yeah. in Isaiah 53. And to recognize that the way that 
he is that this suffering Israel, the suffering servant that the Messiah is being talked about is in one sense not very attractive uh, to modern people, but uh, and also to ancient people who wanted a conquering ruler to save them. And instead, goodness goes forth through suffering and even by being despised by the most powerful in earth, by dying in an ignominious fashion. And through that kind of an offering, the story goes forward in triumph ensues. Joseph Smith is another example of this, right? He oh. dies, uh, he's murdered, right? He dies a martyr's death, and the message spreads forth from that. Abinadi, in fact, Carrie, here's another little side nod. John Hilton taught, it get, suggests this. The timeline, and you can even look at it, those who are listening to this, go look at the chapter headings in the way that we have interpreted the timeline in the current chapter headings and the previous the, the timeline. It, it used to be in the footnotes, now it's in the chapter headings. King Benjamin's message is probably 20 to 30 years after Abinadi's message, which catches us by surprise. We don't think of it in those terms. This is a flashback. And, and just go check it. You're going to think, no, that can't be right. And, and this is, we don't know for sure, right? But yeah. this is actually the way that our chapter headings have sort of uh, teased out the timeline. Well, King Benjamin, interestingly enough, a lot of his message is quoting an angel who shows up to him. And here's the real surprise. Uh, when, when you look at the way that angel talks, goodness, he sounds a lot like Abinadi. Uh, uh, he says some things that are, that are very similar to things that I, even the phraseology at times is very similar. Well, so I, I've gone too far here, but you can see why I would love that idea. Yeah. Abinadi, oh, what if he were? What if he were that angel who shows up to give the message to King Benjamin that then creates such a powerful impact on King Benjamin's people? That's, oh, that's fun, interesting. Right? That yeah. is fun. The fun possibility. We'll just leave it at that. I had another thought that I've never thought of before, but as you were talking, um, but uh, you were talking about how, uh, you know, people are looking for a Messiah in ancient times. That's this conquering, powerful Messiah. And because Christ doesn't come as that conqueror, they don't accept him. And I think, you know what, today people aren't looking for a conquering, powerful Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah who says everything is okay and whatever you're doing is okay. Uh, let's just love everything, no matter what people are doing. And I, I'm not, we should love everyone, no matter what they're doing. But I think they're looking for the opposite of a conquering Messiah. And we have a Messiah who is both a conquering Messiah and a loving Messiah. And if you're looking for one or the other, you don't accept the real deal. And I, so I think we're on the other side of that coin right now and still not accepting the Messiah or his prophets as a result. But anyway, just my own speculation on that. But The tension is probably the wrong word to use here, but that that as you bring together the cursed one and the triumphant one, I totally agree. It's not just the one who meets us where we are and leaves us as we are. And that, that, that's the tension that gives life, that gives power, that gives meaning to it. It is the one who meets us where we are and moves us into behaviors of holiness, the triumphant one, the one who helps us conquer death. If he leaves us exactly the same, uh, I just don't know that that's what I'm looking for Got in it. my my hero, my my victor. I that's want not a helpful messiah. Yeah, I want someone who understands me. I also want someone who gives me power to triumph. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I totally agree. All right. Well, now you get this beautiful chapter fifty three that expresses this uh, this suffering that will lead to triumph. And then, in fact, it, it's a little bit, some Bible scholars are like, well, 53 doesn't seem like it belongs. It seems like it's inserted here. It just sort of springs into this. And then it's like 54 carries forward the message of 52 that, hey, I'm going to save you, right? That it's going to be okay. But you, you know, I, I absolutely believe 53 is right where it belongs as, well, what's going to be the means of salvation, yeah. which is what that's going to look like. Yeah. And then, this is why the saving is possible. Yes, it's yes. 53. Yeah. And what is going to flow then from that uh, offering, from that sacrifice that leads to triumph? Well, now we get Isaiah 54. This flows out of it. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing. This is chapter 54, verse 1. Cry aloud. You, you, you didn't have children. You were barren. But now children are springing up out of the dust of the earth, right? Enlarge, you need a bigger tent 
for your covenant family here. That's verse two, right? And you've had so many children, you have to have a bigger tent. Yes. And some of you who are listening probably know what that feels like. Not everybody does, but you know, you, you oh, got to build an addition on the back of the house, you know, um, yeah. uh, if you're talking about a physical family. And, and here, I, I don't know that we're not talking about a physical family, but we are also, of course, more importantly, more powerfully talking about this covenant family. Israel that was lost springs forth and is restored in the last days. And, and of course, um, for Jewish readers, uh, for modern Israelis who live in the state of Israel, and of course, politically speaking, these are all, you know, th these are all very human kinds of organizations, but they also look around at the gathering of the Jews in the last days, and they're like, this came out of nowhere. How could this have happened? This is miraculous, right? Yeah. Um, so back, back to this, though, and I want to now point for just a moment, when Christ comes to the Nephites, it's sort of fascinating. He quotes 52, and he quotes 54. He doesn't say anything about 53. No. So uh, how blessed are these messengers? And then look what's going to spring forth. And, and by the way, Christ shows up, and then guess what happens? Fourth Nephi happens, where they they recognize Isaiah 53, and I guess the point I want to make is Christ is Isaiah 53. He's standing in front of them. He's saying, feel the wounds in my hands and my feet. He exemplifies and models the power that comes, and they come and are connected with him and are blessed by his love and by knowing him. They have been trying for hundreds of years to be good and faithful, and, and they just, they try, but they struggle and then Christ shows up and they feel his love and they are changed by his love. And it's all, they're still trying after that, but it's almost like it flows naturally from them. Mm. Uh, fourth Nephi, this Zion like community where you get families and building and joyous sort of behavior. Zion springs out of Christ who is exemplifying Isaiah 53 and them coming to understand here's, this is who we're talking about. This is where the power springs from. That's good. That's good. And then them go, going forth and being the servants, right? They, they have to take that word and spread it. And so that's good stuff. Yeah. It, it's just, to me, what, what Christ does with Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, as he models Isaiah 53 in front of the Nephites and then quotes Isaiah 54 is, is just very, very powerful. Um, let, let me say one other thing about this. Um, Carrie, before I want to, we, we could track this forward into 54 and 55. I'd like to take a moment in 56 uh, before we're done here today. But first, let me do something else. Okay. So then this will be just sort of in general, and, and you can sort of comment on it, say whether you agree with it or not, that kind of thing. Oh, I just So <laughs> we know that automatically. So the Old Testament says very little about the personal nature of Christ's atonement. In fact, when Lehi gives explicit teachings about the nature of the Messiah, the Jews at Jerusalem uh, try to kill him, right? Yeah. So it depends on how you interpret the Old Testament is, is the issue here, right? right? So there are things we could certainly read that way, but not everybody understands them that way. Well, Lehi, Nephi, and Jacob teach clearly about a Messiah and a Redeemer, but talk very little about the personal aspects of Christ's atonement. You get that first as a Benedi quotes Isaiah 53 and applies that suffering servant directly to the mission of Jesus Christ. And then if we're going to chronologically accept this idea that King Benjamin comes after, that's the next one. And he gets it from this angel, this angelic figure. And then Alma the Younger is going to continue to talk about uh, this very personal, the personal nature of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Uh, and then we've talked about what Christ talks about when he comes. In the New Testament, the closest thing we get to this very personal understanding of uh, the effects of Christ's mission is the epistle to the Hebrews, which does some really beautiful things uh, with that. So here's, the, here's what I want to suggest. Is it possible? And of course, we have modern day prophets who are teaching this, but they are also, both with modern revelation and with reading of the scriptures, relying upon the messaging in the Book of Mormon, what ancient right. prophets have taught. Could we say, in one sense, that our understanding that is so dear to us as Latter-day Saints of the personal nature of Christ's atoning sacrifice springs from 
Isaiah 53. I think absolutely. I, I, to me, there's no doubt. It, it has shaped uh, partially from Isaiah 53, but as you say, in many ways through the Book of Mormon, it has done more to shape our understanding of what Christ went through when he suffered than anything else, I believe. Yeah, thank you. It, 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 I totally agree. So just a shout out to Isaiah 53 and to this ancient prophet Isaiah who spoke in such beautiful, powerful ways that it still is life changing. You, you talk about when the scriptures become real to us, I don't know that it gets more real than the impact of Isaiah's ancient teachings and then the way that Nephi cares so much about them and it brings it forward to us as Latter-day Saints. This is so good when the prophets see eye to eye and understand each other across time and space. It's really beautiful. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's, if we could, Carrie, we're, we're going to, there's beautiful things in 54. There's beautiful things in, in 55. Uh, let's go to 56, if we could, because there's a really beautiful spot there for Latter-day Saint readers. Anything else you wanted to say about 54 and 55 before we no, sort of we're, jump? We're good. Okay. All right. So I know you've seen these before and, and how beautiful they are um, when he's talking about what this is going to look like, what this, uh, this restored covenant people is going to look like in the last days. Um, and, and that's the way we read it. And of course, the ancient Jewish people and Israelite people who are reading this are going to read as they come back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Uh, and, and so he's saying, what's this supposed to look like? So verse three, neither, this is chapter 56, neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, speak saying, saying, wow, the Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So those who feel on the outside of temple blessings come in we are bringing you in now this isn't you you have to hold fast to the covenant and the covenant principles and that's very clear in verse four thus saith the lord unto the eunuchs that keep my sabbaths and choose the things that please me so not the things that please us but the things that please the lord and take hold of my covenant and and we've talked a little bit about this idea of the covenant hand god bringing us into relationship with him take hold of my covenant, take hold of my hand. If you want to come in, don't think you're on the outside of this thing. You are part of this story. Verse five. And, and maybe before you go on to just kind of highlight how much they would think they're uh, outside of this oh, thing. Yeah. Good. Uh, eunuchs are not allowed to, to participate in, uh, and also a number of other people with what you, what the Bible would call a deformity. Um, uh, are not allowed to participate in in rituals, and the the strangers, the non-Israelite, is not allowed either. Um, and so these are people who typically would be uh, not necessarily uh, spiritually, but in from a ritual standpoint, they are outside. They are they they can't be part of it. And so I think they do stand at least in our day for everyone who feels for one way and for one reason or another that they're outside. And this chapter, I think, would have been shocking to Isaiah's audience to say, wait a minute, you're saying that these guys who are on the outside can have all this? It's just shocking. And, and I hope that we can think of it in a way that shocks us as you go on to say what you're going to say. So go ahead. This is big tent kind of stuff, but it's big tent that says, and there's a, you got to hold to God, yeah. right? You, you got to come to him, let yourself be lifted through these covenants. But if you think you're on the outside, you are part of this story. And, and I love what you said. I hope it's a little bit shocking to us and that we will get better and better at viewing our world in these ways. So then uh, it, it comes to verse five, even unto them, into those of you, those of us who feel on the outside, who feel estranged, but if you will come in and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house. So this is a prophecy. And Bible scholars call this the democratization of temple worship. That's the idea here, right? What That which was narrow now is broad in shocking ways, as, yep. as Carrie said. Yep. And, and mine house can be interpreted. I mean, the primary interpretation is probably the temple, but it can also be interpreted like house of Israel, right? Oh yeah. You can be part of the covenant and you can be fully part of the covenant, even in the temple. 
Think of being on the outside of a house on a cold night and you look in the window and, and a family is eating a, a, a meal together. That's also the imagery, right? No, yeah. come inside. You are part of the family. Come be part of this warm, loving family, right? Yeah, good. All right. So in mine house and within my walls, I will give them a place and a name. And well, I'm going to come back to that better than of sons and of daughters. I'm going to give you the best possible name. You think you're in the worst possible space. Come inside and think of Jesus in, in the parable he gives of the prodigal son, where yeah. the father goes out to the elder son and tries to bring him into the feast. He's brought the wayward son in, the prodigal son's like, or, or sorry, he's brought the prodigal son in. The elder son is like, nope, I, I'm not coming in. If you're, if you've let him in the house, then that that's, that place is not for me. And and the father goes outside and says, come in, come be part of this. And and that whole parable, by the way, starts with the the leaders and those who are accusing Jesus, saying, you're eating with sinners, right? And then it ends with him, the, the elder son saying, you're eating with a sinner. You're eating with the prodigal son, right? Um, and, and, and him trying to convince him, no, don't, you know, come, come back in. Yes, I've killed the fatted calf. I've given him a name better than that of sons and daughters. You are part, we're all part of the story if we choose to be so, right? Don't let your heart be hardened. All right. Well, so I've given, uh, I'm going to give you a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then there's, there's other beautiful uh, promises that are going to come, but let's go back to that, that phrase. I will give within my house and within my walls, a place and a name. And Carrie knows uh, this is Yad Vashem. Literally, this is translated. I'm going to bring you into my house and there I am going to give you a hand and a name. I will bring you into my covenant. I will offer you um, that covenant relationship, and I will place a family name. I'll place a name upon you. And, and it's translated very appropriately in many different translations. Every translation you look at is like a memorial and a name, a place and a name. This idea of, I'm going to give you a home. You're a forgotten one. You're an outsider. I'm bringing you in. So the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel commemorates uh, Jews who died in the Holocaust. And there is this beautiful room at the end of that museum. It's called the, the, the Hall of Names or the Hall of Remembrance. And you, it's just a bunch of names and genealogy of those who died in the Holocaust. And Jewish people have gone to do work so that those forgotten ones will not be forgotten. So they are remembered. I'm bringing you inside and your name will not be forgotten. You are honored. Your sacrifice is honored. And, and I want to link part, that. Part of the reason that's so important also is this idea that your, your name is carried on through your children, right? Mm -hmm. But Good. these were people who they and their children died. Um, in most cases, sometimes children survived, but for many of them, there was no carrying on. And this is God and his people saying, you're not just because that's what happened to you. You're not being forgotten. Your names keep being carried on, even though you don't have children to carry it on for you. And, and as Carrie's speaking there, I'm thinking of Isaiah 53 as it talks about the suffering servant, right? Who's, yep. who's cut off. And there's this concern about, will his name continue? Will his seed continue? What's going to happen here? Yeah. And, and who will declare his generation? Yeah. yeah. You're brought in, you're part of this family. Now I, I want to continue for a moment, this connection with Latter-day Saint temple worship and service. And I, I have to, in order to do that, I want to give a quick, but important aside that it's, it's, continues to be very, very important. It has been difficult for our Jewish friends. The Latter-day Saints have not been more respectful of that work that they've done in their uh, those Holocaust memorial lists and genealogies and that Latter-day Saints have sort of with, with good intention uh, on our part have said, oh, let, let's do temple work for them. That, that does not communicate well to most of our Jewish friends. And the church uh, says that that practice is not allowed. So just, just a little reminder as I'm putting these two things into contact uh, with each other, this idea of Yad Vashem and the Holocaust memorial. I'm going to give them a, a memorial, a place and a name. But I do want now to just suggest that as we do work for our ancestors, that this is the work we're doing for our own people, for our ancestors, 
that these are people who live beautiful but now forgotten lives, sometimes short lives, sometimes really painful lives, sometimes lives that nobody knows about. And we are doing the work to value who they are, the forgotten ones, those who have passed away. And we're, we're taking time to bring their names into the walls of the temple so that they may receive a place and a name, a hand and a name there. And we are remembering them. We are honoring them. We are giving them due deference. And, and then we work to make sure that the effects of their lives are not forgotten or lost. This is a, a powerful ministry that, as, as we know, the goal is to unite all of us as children of God. There's some real, really beautiful connections, I think, here. And, and uh, maybe just to add to that, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you've said it so beautifully. And we do this uh, for people, regardless of what kind of people they were or what they did in their lives. We don't even know most of the time, mm-hmm. right? doesn't matter. Terrible, sinner, uh, murder, whatever. We're doing the work for you. Um, everyone, whether you're a eunuch or not, right? Uh, a son of the stranger or not. Uh, whoever you and I might think, nope, no chance for them. No, that's not our call. God's inviting everyone in. We do work for everyone. We give everyone a chance, regardless of who they are, what they've done. It doesn't matter. There's a, there's a place and a name for everybody. Mm. That's, that's really, really beautifully said. I, I love that. Um, and and we just so that we're clear uh, with a podcast that will be heard by some people who may not understand Latter-day Saint practices super well, there's that chance that th- this work that we do, it's, it's like an offering that we offer, but a free will offering with this idea that we are honoring them. And then, uh, you know, whatever that impact that has on their lives is completely in their zone of agency, right? Uh, to, to accept and appreciate yeah. that offering that's done Good in point. the temple or not. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's very important. Well, so you can see why I thought, uh, Carrie and I thought, no, let's spend a little bit of time in these verses, right? To say, this is the Latter-day Project, and this, this is challenging at times for Latter-day Saints to, to think broadly, to love where we might, our own sense of things might not be inclined to lead us that way, to unite rather than divide, and then also to hold faithfully to the principles of the covenant, to the teachings uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the covenants of holiness. Uh, that, but the Isaiah holds those together in such beautiful and, as Carrie has said, shocking ways. This is, I think, changes. Understanding Isaiah's message here has the power to change who we are and the way we see the world. Uh, That's beautiful stuff, Sean. Thank you so much for spending some time with us to help us get some things out of Isaiah in some ways that it's become uh, real and and affected you and it's affected me as well. And I hope it's made it become more real and, and applicable for our audience. Thank you for that so fun to be with you and we we do like isaiah i like isaiah i know you yeah, do. yeah. it's life-changing stuff it really is yeah it is so we hope uh it's been that way for our audience and that uh you'll uh teach people in your ward from the things you've learned and you'll share this with others and uh that uh, we'll bring everyone into the tent so thank you 